This is Bumping Into, where we have interesting conversations with people from all walks of life. Thanks for joining me. I'm Francis Populin and this is Bumping Into. Today, we talk to a Queensland Government Minister, Rob Molhock. If you've ever wondered how or why someone ends up in government, then this is the episode for you. Perhaps you've got doubts over how much say us, the people, really have. Is it a government for the people or is it a government for themselves like many do believe? I throw a scenario at my guest that leaves an answer around that topic on the table for you to make up your own mind. A disclaimer, I'm neither a Liberal or LNP or Labor supporter by default. I think it's very, very dangerous to vote by brand. Um, I, I think everyone should vote by policy. Uh, and that has to be reviewed at the time because comparing uh, the, the the brand vote would be like saying you're going to buy a brand new Ford Focus because you like the 1970s Ford GT. They're not the same beast. They share a badge on the front and that's it. So it's very important, I believe, to look under the bonnet when the time comes and compare policy and make your decision based on that and hope that what they're saying is true and you might get half of it happening. This also is not intended to be a grilling. It's a conversation. So... It's the sort of conversation that I would have had if I had bumped into my guest without a microphone running. It was the questions that I had always wanted to ask. Um, and obviously, we go into a bit of an origin story because I believe that's important into figuring out how and why people end up where this interview is probably primarily focused. And here is the conversation. I wanted to start at the start. So I saw you went to Cooper Park. Yep. So that's obviously early 70s. So I was, I was the first kid to enrol there the day it opened. Wow, so number one. Yeah, so not not number one on the enrolment list because it was an alphabetical list, but I was actually the first kid at the school when they opened the doors for enrolments. Wow. Which I didn't expect, but I just, just sort of turned up, up early. Yeah. And, uh, and, and part of the reason was I didn't want to go to Southport High because it had such a bad rep back in those days. Really? And I, I, I remember rushing off in the morning saying to my mum, I don't want to miss out. Because um, wow. I might have to go to Southport if I don't. If you don't get in here, don't get into Kebra. Jeez, yeah, so, that's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, obviously, all the schools have their time as having a rough reputation. They yeah. go through those cycles, but I didn't expect Southport to have that back then. Oh, back then, yeah, it was a pretty wild school. Wow. Yeah, there was, uh, yeah, and a lot of drugs, and you know, it was that sort of era when, you know, there was a lot of experimentation, and it would just sort of come. It was the early goth. Yeah, days. The freedom it was, was the, opening. It was yeah. the whole kind of freedom movement yeah. and, you know, everyone was sort of, thank God we didn't get called up to go to Vietnam. And yeah, yeah. So that was yeah. my older brother. Oh, um, wow. So it was just a, yeah, it was an interesting time. Yeah. Um, but then it was also um, around the time of the Cold War. So, you know, there was still, you know, people talk about anxiety now because of coronavirus. Yeah. But, but you were there was a lot of anxiety yeah. back then because we all thought the world was going to end. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I had friends from Southport High and their, their older siblings. And uh, I can remember, you know, going to their home after school or something and, you know, some of their older siblings all sort of sitting around like, you know, dressed like hippies and smoking oh. pot and, you know, oh, talking yes. in real doomsday terms about the end of the world. And, you know, don't worry about going to uni because, you know, we're not going to be here in five years. The whole world's going to get blown up. So there was that front of mind. Yeah, and, and uh, there was actually a couple of families in the school who um, were real sort of, um, well, I can't remember that trend, what they called it, but uh, they had supplies 
stacked up under the house, you know, like, you like know, the doomsday food and petrol. Yeah, doomsdayers. And uh, they, they were expecting, you know, it to be imminent and they had sort of escape routes planned out to a farm out west. And, wow, and, oh, geez, uh, I there were three, three, or four, three or four of the kids in my sort of cohort. Uh, and I remember going over to one of their homes after school one afternoon and the whole of their underhouse was just stacked with literally pallets and drums of um, food and, Jeez. and uh, fuel and emergency supplies. Wow, that's full on. I, I had no idea it was that. It was kind of intriguing. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, yeah. And then obviously nothing came of it. No, uh, no. And stuff. look, I, I, I came from a family. My parents migrated here in the 50s. Okay. Dad survived um, four years in a German POW camp in, in Czechoslovakia in a town called Brux, which oh. has since been renamed. And it was basically about 240 kilometres just over the border of Germany, but south in um, south of uh, Auschwitz. Wow. Okay. And, um, and uh, of the, the cohort that went through that um, camp, so he, it was a synthetic fuel factory, um, less than 50% survived the war, so he was one of the lucky ones. And then when the Americans came through and emancipated all of the POWs, uh, in his location they actually built new barracks next to the camp so that, because that was so unsanitary, so that the surviving POWs could actually stay somewhere um, while they got well enough and fit enough and you know, healthy enough to be able to make their way home. So. Uh, my mother, uh, she'd given Dad up as lost two years earlier. And, uh, and then even after the war ended, it was probably, I think, three or four months before Dad actually got back to Holland. And, um, and then he sort of knocks on the door and Mum had sort of moved on with her life and was in a oh, new relationship, which really? she then terminated. And Dad met, um, you know, the, the child that they had together before he got sent off for the first time. And... And uh, anyway, they decided that uh, they just wanted to get away from war-ravaged Europe and all of the issues with their families and the As past. so many did in that time, yeah. And they came to Australia to start a new life, so. Where'd they come in? Was it Melbourne? So they, they came in through Melbourne. They spent, I think, about six months at Bonagella. Okay, yep. Up on the Hume Weir there, uh, which I've since had the privilege of, you know, visiting. And, wow. And, uh, and then they went back to Melbourne. Uh, they bought a house. Um, they worked. Mum worked in a, uh, a woolen mill. Uh, Dad worked as a sign writer and a painter. And after two years, they decided they wanted to move north. Um, a friend of Dad's had come up to the Gold Coast and said, you should come up here. It's warmer. There's so much opportunity. And back then, this would have been yeah, well, Dad so got, far away. Yeah, well, Dad got in the car, drove up by himself, had wow. a look around. And, uh, and then we drove back and s just said, sell the house, we're moving to Queensland. So that was in 1954 oh. they came here. Jeez, that would have been a hard, slow drive. Yeah, and gravel, yeah. a lot of gravel roads, a lot of, um, a lot of rivers without bridges, so you'd either have to go the long way around or go over on a ferry. Wow, so by the time they came here, the Gold Coast is still very much... Oh. Very, very small oh, yeah. coastal um, town. Le less than 30,000 people from Coolangatta to Paradise Point. Yeah, and a lot of nothing in between those, yeah, those spaces, I, yeah. I see um, you were the general manager of CFM and Gold FM. Yeah, so I, I left the Gold Coast at the end of year 12 
I worked for Woolies for about nine years. Oh, okay. And they transferred me all around Queensland, Northern Territory and South Australia. Wow. And then I ended up in Broken Hill uh, as the opening manager for a new Big W store. And the guy that owned the local radio station, uh, he was an ex-Coles manager. And I, we just became friendly because we advertised with him. And one day out of the blue, he said, hey, I'm looking for someone to get involved in the business and become a partner. How would you feel about joining us? So after nine years with Woolies, I, I joined um, 2BH in Broken Hill. And the, the fortunate thing for me was that uh, we went on to become the first computerised radio station in Australia and the first radio station to take satellite uh, programming yeah. from Sydney, uh, as in the news, Macquarie News. And so from a career point of view, what that meant is that I was one of the few people in Australia in the industry. It was across that big change. Yeah, at a time when viability was a big issue, a lot of st radio stations were losing money, um, and uh, the, you know, the markets were changing. You had aggregated television taking market share. And so I, I sort of became an overnight expert in uh, automated radio and, and uh, sales management sales marketing systems that we'd um, copied from America. And so I ended up running the TBN network in Tasmania, um, installed a whole lot of automation equipment there, got headhunted to the first FM radio station in country Australia, which was Sun FM Shepparton. Uh, and then uh, the Australian radio network hunted me down and asked me to go to Albury to start their new FM station. And then I was just up on the Gold Coast for a, a radio course at Bond Uni in management for two weeks um, and uh, Stan Wilmot who was the founding chairman of CFM Limited tapped me on the shoulder one night and, and just said uh, are you ready to come home lad oh, and uh, I said oh what do you mean and he said oh well we're looking for a new general manager for CFM and Gold FM um, I reckon you, you're the guy we need so I, I went back after that resigned and then moved back up here in uh, 96 and spent the next five years working for, uh, well, for Stan for the first couple of months, and then the Grundys took the radio station over, and then, oh, and I then together that. we okay. went from CFM and Gold FM to 38 radio stations around Australia, and then the Grundys sold the whole lot to Macquarie Bank, and and I left and pursued a different career. So that would have been that was a peak time for radio, those 90s where. Oh yeah, they were, they were sort of the halcyon and, days. Yeah, everyone had that on in the car, the kids and the parents listened to the same station, yep. everyone knew whether it was Richard Stubbs in Melbourne or if it was yep. whoever, everyone knew who the radio guy was in those yeah. towns and it's changed a lot now. Oh and look, it was a lot of fun. Um, in fact, I was just having a whinge to my staff this morning because this job can get pretty busy at times. And I said, oh, gosh, you know, sometimes I wish I was back in radio. All, all I basically had to do was, you know, turn up every morning, take clients out to lunch, head out to dinner with clients. Just keep the wheels turning. Um, give everyone a bit of a rev and write a board report once a month and and uh, just, you know, yeah. enjoy the good times of great rock and roll. And, yeah, yeah. And now I've got all these responsibility and all these expectations of me from, you know, 35,000 oh. electors. And yeah. Yeah, oh, can, that's that's and the actually, party and my colleagues and <laughs> yeah, I can. Oh, it would be the, the the back end that goes into what you have to do day by day. People would have no understanding, I'm sure, no appreciation of yeah, yeah, the, 
And, and, and I think too, um, people think that we just sit in an office in our electorate, yeah. receive people, do things, go to parties and functions, yeah. and then we go away to this place called Parliament a few weeks of the year and it's, it's, it's really just a, you know, uh, an opportunity to go away and eat and drink and be yeah, merry. Yeah. But um, aside from being the local member and dealing with just the day-to-day requests that come to your office, yeah. And look, it's everything from a parent that's got a problem with uh, something at school, with their school, uh, to a person that's just moved to the coast, can't find anywhere to live. Wow. Um, someone that's been on a waiting list for a cataract procedure for two years and they've got failing eyesight, they all come here. Um, and then, then you get business people coming that are trying to find a pathway into government. Uh, oh, and, okay. and there's always sort of the, boy, have we got a deal for the government if you buy our product, it's all going to be fantastic. And, and you've got and to make time for all of those people so on you, some level. Yeah, you see yeah. all those sorts of people. And then, um, and then you've got all the organisations that actually um, um, are funded by the government. So, you know, uh, within the community, you know, you've got Community Legal Service and you've got um, Lives Live Well, which is a mental health support group and Headspace and... And you've got all the schools and then you've got the local police and you've got to spread your time through around all those people because as the elected member for this area, you're their voice yeah. when it comes to, you know, securing more funding or putting yeah. their case to a minister for, you know, for support or, uh, you know, defending their honour if, if there's been some controversy in the media. Wow. Uh, so that that's complex. Yeah, definitely. I can, and and what you've said is I've got a lot of things I actually wanted to narrow in on there yep. because you've raised a, a lot of points that I had always wondered on. Yeah. Um, so it, getting into it, obviously you left CFM. Now, mm. how? What was the? What makes you? I'm going to become a politician because that's a huge. Uh, I, for me, it would be mm. very intimidating because you know you're looking at these people that aren't afraid to argue. There's a lot yep. of arguing, um, a lot of egos. Mm. A lot of backstabbing. You know, when you're on, you're on, but when you're off, you're off. Um, yeah, well, you don't really know about that before you get into politics. <laughs> um, so it, it's, there's a lot of similarities between running a radio station and being a member of parliament. Okay. So, the, and, and, and it's, a, it's a hangover from the old, and da- the old days of the Australian Broadcasting Tribunal. So when you ran a local radio station, the licensee had a community service obligation. So the privilege was you got to run this radio station, you got this broadcast spectrum to use, and you could make a lot of money out of it. But? But every five years, you would have to front the broadcasting tribunal, and you would would come with volumes of evidence to show all of the things you were doing to make your community a better place. Right, okay. And part and parcel of that was from from everyone from the the front desk receptionist through to the general manager, Variously, everybody was involved. In fact, um, I wouldn't typically employ people if they weren't a member of the local hockey club or they didn't play some sport or they weren't in Rotary or you know, they didn't demonstrate they had some other interest. A connection. A connection yeah. to community because yeah. it was so important. And, but as a result of that, when I, at the time that I left CFM and Gold FM, um, I was actually on seven not-for-profit boards in the community and was always involved in charity events and fundraisers and um, 
you know, we set up the Gold Coast Community Fund when I was running uh, the radio stations here back in the late 90s. So that's always been important to you at a core level? Well, I, I sort of grew into it. Yeah. Um, I, I think from a young age, I, I knew that we all had an obligation to put something back. Yeah. But the job really propelled it because, you know, I, like I was on the board of Tropic Carnival at one point and, and the Estedford. Um, I was on the Olympic team, 2000 Queensland Fund. Wow. Uh, so raising money for athletes. Uh, I ended up in the fight to save the charges and then ended up on the bid team board. Uh, I ended up the chairman of the community radio station for nearly 10 years. Um, and then uh, I've been involved with Bravehearts now for 15. So when it sort of, when somebody presented me with the prospect of getting involved in politics, yeah. it was almost like... Um, it was an extension of what... It was an extension of a lot of the stuff yeah. I was already doing. Now that you put it like that, that makes perfect sense. And, and I, I actually remarked to someone not long after I got elected, I said, this is great. I actually get paid now to do all the stuff I used to do for free. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So no, it's, um, it's, a, it's, a it's not that way. simple, but... But yeah, you, it's bringing it together and allowing you to take it to the next level. Yeah. yeah. And when I actually got interviewed to run for the LNP back in, when was it, 2011, uh, they had these um, sort of corporate psychologists involved in the interview process. You used to have to do like a personality test. Oh, wow, okay. And um, they actually re-interviewed me. And um, I said to the guy, I said, oh, look, should I be worried? And he said, no, no, no. He said, um, the reason we're re-interviewing is that your personality profile is such a perfect match for someone that would be a politician because of all your community involvement. Uh, we were just concerned that you were either completely lying about everything <laughs> um, and, and you were very good at faking the, your answers um, or you were the real deal. And he said, we can see from your CV and your past that you're actually wow. that's a, you're that's, the real deal. That's so that a good was, compliment. It was a great compliment. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so you weren't at all put off by, uh, I mean, I can only, you see more of the federal politics where they really get stuck into each other and it looks mm. like a big daycare centre with the rowing that goes on. <laughs> but is it the same at the Queensland level? Is there that level of where they really... Yeah, pretty much. So there is a lot. So you, you expect to get up there and yeah, you're wrestling. And, and give it to them. Yeah. Um, and look, th there's two things about that. Uh, th my, these are my reflections. So the first one is um, that there's actually no dishonour in being in opposition. I mean, we'd all like to be in government, and yeah, I've been yeah. in government, so I've tasted that, and now I'm in opposition. But an effective opposition can achieve a lot yeah. because you keep the government honest, you keep them accountable, you yeah. keep them on their toes. It was the Ford was better because of Holden. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you keep, and you keep putting things in front of them that they have to respond to. Yeah. And, and so there's, there's an interesting dynamic and tension that occurs if you have a good, healthy opposition. Yeah. And there is still a lot you can achieve for your community um, because there's, there's a general um, acceptance on all sides of politics that you, you can kind of jockey with each other but you still have to treat people with respect yeah. and, and constituents with respect. So if I write to a minister about a particular issue, um, you know, if, if it's a reasonable issue, you, you'll get a reasonable response and they'll okay. try and help. Um, there are many issues that we write about that um, 
you probably know at the outset you're probably not going to help, but it's important for the constituent to know that you're trying. You're getting it across. Um, but but more often than not, their expectations at the outset were probably a little bit unrealistic. And then the second dynamic about it is that um, one of the things that we take for granted is our freedom. Yeah. I mean, we are a democracy. Yeah. And as intriguing as question time is and all the, you know, the, the hustle and bustle and the biffo that goes on, yeah. you know, and the verbal um, uh, entertainment, um, it, it's actually an extension of that principle of free speech. Yeah. So the fact that you can get up and have a go, uh, the fact that you can throw some bouquets as well, uh, the fact that everybody get, has the right to speak on a piece of legislation and have their words recorded in the history books of Queensland um, and represent their local community. Yeah. Uh, that's actually what democracy is. You know, so the, yeah. the, the most fun, fundamental principle is the right of free speech and yeah. freedom of expression. So at the point that we don't have that, that's when we should be worried. So if we had a parliament where everyone was well behaved and everyone, everything was sanitised yeah, right. and no yeah. one argued and yeah. there was no divergence of ideas... You should be suspicious of what's occurring. I, I'd, yeah. I'd be really worried. That would you're be right. starting to look and sound like a regime to me. Yeah, you're right. No, you're exactly right on that point. So I, yeah. even, even when we're there at midnight and people are droning on with you know, their speeches <laughs> that I've heard the same points raised all day, yeah. I, I always pull myself up and just remind myself of the fact that it's every member's right and every member's privilege yep. to, to put their feelings and, and ideas and thoughts on the record yep. and to express the views of their local constituency. Mm. Um, and that's, that's democracy. Which something I've always wondered. And so 2012, when you were in government, yep. The difference between, so if you wanted to, you've got X, Y, Z that matters to you, yep. be it someone's come in or be it that you want to do it. If you, taking that matter to now you've got to go to the Labor government with yep. it, versus if you were still in power, is there a night and day difference in how much you can achieve if you're, you as a collective party are in power as opposed to you oh. having to approach them? Well. Well, it, it's interesting. One of the first briefings we had when we got elected, or early in the term, was with the Grattan Institute. Uh, and they're basically futurists, and they do work for all sorts of people. And they basically um, put the case, they said, look, 90% of the budget, regardless of who's in power, is already spoken for. Right, okay. It's allocated. You know, because there's already a base cost of running the schools and running hospitals and the so police it's, force. It's tweaking and, that occurs at and, that level. And uh, I had one of my old bosses in the radio group always used to say to me, um, it's all about the margin. And, and he always used to say, look, a good manager will get budget and might make the profit target of the company. Um, but a great manager takes us that little bit over and then more margin falls out at the bottom because your costs are all fixed. And Big W had the same principle. They had, oh. a fixed, they had like a base cost to run a store yeah. and the more you could get your turnover up, um, the more profit that... The profit just fell to the bottom line at a higher rate because your costs are... You, you don't need an extra storeman and all of that, yeah. you know? So, and it's a little bit like that with the government. So 
What most of the jockeying about and the priorities are about yeah. uh, at the end of the day is that sort of, you know, 10% of the budget after 90 yeah. that you can kind of redirect or reprioritise. Um, and then if you labour, you typically redirect more than 100% of the budget, so you <laughs> borrow more or pull it from somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and um, and if you're us, you, you probably try and save That's a right. bit. But Which is interesting because I was going to quiz you on um, when when the Newman government came in. He, he made it quite clear. And I only, I'm a mild observer. I'm not into yeah. it. I'm a mild observer. But, you know, he, came, he made it well clear that he was going to come in. It was time to save money. It was time to do this. I think even Jeff Kennett on some level was consulted with how we could do what had to be done to save money. There was yep. no mystery about what he was going to do. Yep. He turns up on Monday morning and he says, well, I'm cutting this and I'm cutting that and I'm doing this. Then there's outcry. Mm. It's like, well, were, were you not listening? Because I heard the message mm. and I'm not saying it's right or it's wrong, yep. but he made that point pretty clear. Mm. And obviously then he's on the back foot having to defend and there's a public turn against the, him yeah. and that government at the time. It must be very frustrating when... I'm sure that there are other issues someone could come at me and say, oh, but he did this and he said that and he was had his finger in this part. I'm not talking about that. If we scratch it down to a base level, looking at it, he was quite honest in how mm. he was going to approach it. But then he had to defend that mm. and he became a villain for it. Mm. That must have been so disheartening, that, that's, that turn. Oh, look, it, it, it was incredibly frustrating, but um, politics, is, politics is a battle of ideas. And, um, and ideals. And uh, a very good friend of mine always says that um, uh, perception is reality and the truth is negotiable. Mm, yeah. You know, so the, the, the challenge in politics is that um, it's, the facts aren't what matters to the public, it's what they think is true. Yeah. It, yeah. It's what the media say. Yeah. And it's very hard to change people's perceptions. It's yeah. very hard. Um, to get, like, in any industry, it's very hard to communicate effectively with people. In fact, yeah. you know, you look at any sort of high-level review of businesses that are struggling, and one of the key figure, factors that will always come up is people will say, you're just not communicating enough with your staff, you've got to communicate the vision, you've got to share where you're going. It's communicate, communicate, communicate. Yeah. And it's the same challenge for governments. Yeah. And so, to a large degree, we, we just got out-messaged by a very effective um, labour machine, because mm. they've got a mass, massive membership through their unions. Oh, okay, yeah. uh, they, they, they basically own the hearts and minds of a lot of the public servants, and they communicate well with them through all their union people. And they rolled out a little bit like, um, you know, some of the major brands do. They rolled out some key themes and messages, and they kept doing it. Um, so they're masters at marketing and branding, and they basically branded Campbell. Yeah. Because um, the, the facts around Campbell were that there was 12,800 public servants that, uh, that you know, left. Yeah. Um, about 8,000 of those jobs were actually vacant. Oh. So there was about 8,000 that didn't get sacked. Uh, we just chose not to fill those positions. And then there was about 4,800, I think was the figure, don't hold me to the numbers, but yeah, the yeah, ballpark figures, figures uh, who took voluntary redundancies, and the average payout was about one hundred and ten thousand. Wow! 
So they walked away. So a lot of them took it because they went, great, I, yeah. I can back myself, oh. I'll take the payout, and then I'll find my way back into the system somewhere. And back then, that's nearly, that's a decade ago, that yeah. was a lot of money. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was yeah. a lot of money. Yeah, definitely. Um, and and it, took, it took the best part of two years, but we basically, for the first time in probably decades, had a balanced budget. In fact, uh, the overall budget, expense of running the entire state only went up, it was like 0.3 of 1% or something. Um, now what people don't realise is that for every um, 10,000 public servants you put on, uh, that's about a billion dollars a year in wages, wow. on costs, Super. a All desk, yep. everything else. So if we've got, now we've got 40,000 extra public servants in Queensland from when we left in 2000 and Five, uh, 2015, sorry. Well, that's that's about three or four billion dollars a year that's not being spent on roads, uh, on public housing. Mm, it shows on some of the roads. Yeah. And so what we're seeing is we're seeing an increasing, uh, you know, an increase in numbers of employees that work for government, but we're seeing less money spent on capital, yeah. capital programs and. And that's why we're starting to see the congestion problems we've got yeah. in southeast Queensland. Yeah. Uh, that's why we're, we've got such acute uh, waiting lists around public housing. Yeah. Uh, that's why uh, even in the health system, um, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing all sorts of issues around um, access to hospitals. And some of the hospitals now have what they call patient management systems or bed management systems. Oh, okay. So they basically have two doctors and a team of people competing every day to get people out and the other person's competing to get people in. Um, and that's not like that's just at Gold Coast Hospital or the oh, Brisbane, that's... that's at all our major hospitals across the state. So step back from that a minute and go, well, if we hadn't put on all the extra, you know, maybe if we hadn't put half the extras on, mm. uh, that would have freed up a few billion dollars. Maybe we could have built the extra thousand or yeah. two thousand beds and that we needed at, at, at all our critical hospitals across the state. Because, I, again, not, not, this is at a mild interest level in marketing and, and psychology, there is that old, and Labor pull that out every four years or whatever, mm. that Liberals will not spend, they will cut and you will suffer, and Labor will give you more of what you want. Yeah. And it, 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 obviously, they were, they were playing at the extremes and the truth is in the middle, mm. but it's... Um, it is, and it goes back, all, there's that assumption even at a federal level, you know, that, that mm. Labor will, will give you new roads, new schools and new this. And, and, but if Liberal's in, oh, well, you have to deal with what you've got, we're not going to spend Or are they just better at marketing themselves? And that's, and that's it, isn't it? And then, then yeah. that leads to what I've always thought is that too many people vote by brand, not by policy. Yeah, there's been a lot of that. Um, mind you, I think the political parties have made it hard for people to understand the difference in, well, that, in yeah. policies. Yeah. Um, the, the other challenge is society has changed. We are, we're one of the wealthiest nations in the world. Uh, we have second or third highest standard of living in the world. Uh, the average dwelling size, so the size of our houses, oh, yeah. uh, is the largest in the world. Um, and the occupancy rate of those dwellings is actually one of the lowest. Wow. So you, you look at some of these sort of global trends, um, our household income is, um, 
you know, it, it, it's probably 20 or 30% higher than average household income in America. Uh, and then you go to the third world, so 90% of the world's population actually earns or receives less income than someone on welfare in Australia. Jeez. So, and we lose sight of that. Yeah. Um, and, and we've become, we've just been accustomed to high levels of service and high standards of living, and it's very hard to, to pull back yeah. from that. You can't take away what you've already got because there's, yeah. there's outcry. Yeah. yeah. No, you're absolutely right. If, in looking at the government that was, and I know Labor pulled the card out every time saying it's still the same beast, yeah. is there, do you see being inside that machine that it is different to the 2012? Oh, absolutely. So it is, it, you know, it's not, obviously you can't take what gets thrown at you in advertising, but it would be interesting <coughs> as an insight to see, and not saying that machine was right or wrong at the time, but yeah, yeah. it is different now. Well, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of things that are different. So you've got to remember at the time, uh, the Bly government were, were pretty much at an end. Like Beattie mm. got out, um, you know, they'd had a halcyon decade. You know, he kind of handed it over to Anna Bly uh, and things weren't going. You know, they'd well, committed, committed, yeah. committed. And I think he kind of scratched his head and went, I don't know how we're going to pay for all this. I'll let someone else worry about <laughs> it. I've had a great time. And... When we actually won that election, um, th there are many in the Labor movement that have said to me, we were relieved that we were able to just hand the prop because we were out of ideas. And so we, uh, you know, by all the reports and we brought the, the experts in, we basically, for the first time back in government after 20 years, we basically were handed uh, a basket case. Deal with this. Deal with this. Um, we worked hard to change a lot of laws. Uh, we worked hard to sort of tighten, try and tighten the purse strings. Uh, we also worked hard to introduce a lot of new programs and different approaches, particularly around child protection and, yeah. and uh, you know, and there was a, a focus range. around crime too, which yeah, I there felt was a massive was really focus on crime. It, that seems to be a huge issue at the moment. Yep, and uh, and so it's true. We, you know, they coined it well. Uh, I think people kind of went, wow, you guys have gone a bit hard at this. Yeah. And we did. We, we made the changes and people went, well, you've just gone too hard, too fast. So I think the lesson for us is that there's a few. Uh, one is that it's a completely different time now. We're, we're dealing with a global pandemic. Um, there's anxiety. There's uncertainty. Um, there's, a, there's different views and understandings around how to manage debt and, and, and you know, manage state finances and federal yeah. finances. Which is um, interesting because they're always, there's no, I heard an expression once on ABC Radio and they said, if you were to ask 10 doctors to diagnose the symptoms, you would get eight answers probably the same. Yeah. Ask an economist, you'll get 10 different answers. Yeah, and, and look, the, the other thing that we lose sight of is that money is relative. So every morning when they come on Seven Sunrise or, you know, Today Show and they go, you know, the Aussie dollar today is at 73.2 cents or yep. I remember when it was at 48 cents um, yeah. <laughs> early in my radio <laughs> career. Um, or, you know, it, I can also remember a time when it was $1.15. Yeah. Um, all that's simply doing is pegging it against the value of other money around the world. And so when you start to look at debt, you look at borrowings, you look at interest rates, we're this tiny little place on this massive island who have been lucky enough to have the, 
all those resources at our fingertips. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the relativity of our debt and our earnings and our purchasing power is all tied to the global economy and the, and the, the, the international monetary markets. Yeah. Um, one of the things I think that's interesting is if you look at, say, Queensland's debt, um, our debt is about, um, from what I can work out, it's about 18 or 20% of our state's GDP. So, so, um, so you kind of go, well, that's probably a bit like a household mortgage, you know. You, mm. um, you know, your, your debt servicing costs or your rental costs and in interest and that are about 20% of your income. Um, America's debt is 240% of GDP. So how do they pull out of that? How can there, how can there be a roadmap to well, fix that? I think the American economy, I mean, A, it's strong and they're very smart, but, but it's, a giant, it's a bit of a Ponzi scheme. Um, because from what I understand, uh, the Arabs, uh, the wealthy Europeans and China own more US greenbacks now than, than America does. Yeah. So it's almost become the default global currency. Has, yeah, yeah. And its value, I think, eventually has to collapse. Mm. Because it's it's basically held up by global interests. Yeah. Um, it's it's not really held not up in-house. because of the strength of yeah. um, you know the American economy. So uh, look, I think there's some challenging times ahead in that whole space. I'm not an economist, so I, I wrestle to understand how it would play out. Yeah. But but I do think that in spite of all that, uh, when you look at um, all the opportunity we have, the natural resources we have, um, you know, the, the, the skills we have. I think we're still pretty well placed to be a, a real force globally. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we're, we're well placed to weather, you know, the worst of uh, economic financial storms, yeah. you know, should they come in the future. And I, I suspect that post COVID, uh, there'll be some massive corrections. But I think the great opportunity for Australia is that um, if, if you're a family in Europe or China or Malaysia or Korea or Japan and you're thinking about where can I send my children for international ed and to study and a better future, uh, you would have sent them in the past to America or Europe or, or Australia. Um, but given how well we've handled uh, the, the current economic circumstances and COVID, I think there'll be a lot of very wealthy and a lot of middle-class families overseas that when the, when the borders open again, they'll be looking to send their kids here to study. Yeah. Uh, they'll probably be looking for pathways for themselves to bring their wealth and their businesses here. And I think we're going to see a, 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 an entire second or third wave of migration into our country oh, okay. yeah. and, uh, and with it a lot of economic prosperity. So yeah. I, I think we're... We really are the lucky country. Yeah, 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 I agree, yeah. When, speaking of COVID, there was a big hoo-ha that started about people saying there shouldn't be, we shouldn't have states, we should all be one. Yep. I know Sunrise were pushing that train quite hard, um, which I find it to be quite odd that anyone mm. would want to do that. I mean, my logic is that if you don't like the education system here or you don't like the way the schools are run, mm. the way the hospitals are run, you can hop in the car and go and live in Tweed Heads mm. because it's different. And there's nothing, yeah. we don't need to homogenise everything. Yeah. Different yeah. is good. Um, and I, 
you sort of think, well, if we were under one umbrella and you didn't like those laws and rules, you've got nowhere to move. Mm -hmm. you've, you're fixed. Yeah. Is that how you, being in, in government, when people make that comment, say, we should do away with the Queensland, we should all be federal? Yeah, no, I, I don't agree. I, Australia's a big place. Yeah. And if you look at it, I, try, I often look at it through the lens of, you know, the, the, the early pioneers that came out here. Uh, and remember, they, they probably most of them came from Europe. Yeah. A place of many countries. Mm. So when they came out here, they weren't thinking about one nation with six states, yeah. they were looking at like, well, how many Europe's can we fit into this yeah. place? <laughs> and uh, in their mind and in their thinking, uh, they wouldn't have seen an issue at all with, well, North Queensland's very different to Central Queensland yeah, and the Central's different to South yeah. East and Northern New South Wales, yeah. like a whole other country yeah. separate to Sydney. Uh, and so you mentioned earlier, you know, the tension between Ford and Holden. I, I think it's actually good. Yeah for the economy and good for our, um, uh, you know, competitive, you know, to, yeah, to encourage competition, yep. for, for there to be a Queensland and a New South Wales and yeah. a Victoria and for and there to be a bit way. of rivalry. I agree, yeah. Because um, we're a big country. Yeah, yeah. And what a lot of people don't realise is Queensland was one of the first states to become a state. Oh. And it was basically because when the colony was being run out of uh, Sydney, uh, they saw this disparate group all the way up there that were difficult to get to, difficult to service as a bit of a nuisance. Uh, so we'll give them and they their went, own. well, we, we'll give them their autonomy and, you know, they're, they're never going to come to anything anyway. Yeah. Because Sydney's <laughs> the centre of the universe. Yeah, yeah. And so we became, you know, Queen Victoria pronounced us a state and, and yeah. uh, you know, that she sent over the golden scepter or the, the mace yeah. and, and, and the imprimatur and then yeah. in the middle of a bunch of cow paddocks in Brisbane... Yeah. Um, in what was a, a little, you know, a few general stores and about 100,000 people. Yeah. Uh, they built this magnificent sandstone building at, on the top of the hill. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and then lined it with gold from the mines, gold mines of Gympie and, and Mount Morgan. And so yeah. it's a, you know, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's an interesting past and an interesting yeah. and quite colourful history. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then one of the other little known facts is that uh, back in those days, the only way to get around the state, because there, there weren't great railways and, you know, you had Cub and Co coaches, but yeah. if you were the member for North Queensland, uh, they would sail down. And so uh, the state actually invested in a paddle steamer uh, called the Lucinda, which was sort of the equivalent of the corporate jet of the day, and it used to sail up and down the coast and wow. take the cabinet round to visit the state. And then uh, in uh, the late 1800s, um, a whole bunch of guys uh, or folk got together from around Australia and they sat on the deck of the Lucinda and they penned the first Australian constitution just ahead of Federation in 1901. Really? So we've, you know, Queensland's got a lot to be proud of yeah. um, and some interesting history. And look, um, I agree we're all Australians, but when it comes to managing um, disease uh, and pandemic, uh, there's got to be zones. Yeah. Um, and, and look, yeah. we saw it with New South Wales. We didn't lock down from all of New South Wales last time. We just locked down from red zones within mm. New South Wales. So I think we're getting better at managing it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, at the moment, it's, it's very interesting to see where it's going with this latest strain.
Mm, yeah, yeah. The one thing that um, I've always wondered, person in your role, how do you deal with the stress, like you were talking about before, making time for complaints, making time for mm -hmm. issues? Now, my phone's always on, and I cop it all the time, yeah. and, and it's obviously hard to be present. You're at home, mm. but 50% of you is, is mm. somewhere else, and you're, you're thinking about what has to happen tomorrow to make tomorrow easier. Mm. Is that always an ongoing battle, that you, you, know, you are having to struggle with that, be it the weight of a sad story, or the barraging of people whinging, you know, that constant? Mm. Oh, look, it, it, it ebbs and flows. Um, I always say to people that if you're going to get involved in politics, and a little bit like my time in radio, you've got to understand it's a lifestyle. Yeah. It's not a job. And so uh, you just accept the fact that there are demands on you for certain social interaction and, and yeah. civic duties. Uh, there are times you just have to knuckle down and do difficult stuff. Yeah. Uh, there are other times you just have to lock a day aside and... and you know, meet people one after another for a few hours to grind through all the issues. Um, I, th I think, though, that the two things that, that I hold very dear is I think it's important when you go into politics, you need to write yourself a list of why you're doing it yeah. and what you want to achieve. Because it's very easy to get lost in the mire of it mm. and then a few years down the track sort of go, well, what, what have I about? achieved? Yeah. Whereas if, if you, you think about what you want to achieve at the start and you write it down somewhere, incredible satisfaction and personal satisfaction mm, okay. to be able to go back and look at that list and go, well, I did that and I ticked that off and yeah. here's what yeah. I achieved. Um, and then the second thing is you just have to have good boundaries. So Yeah, because uh, obviously you'll have a lot of people with unrealistic expectations and you, you get that thrown at you. And yeah, and, yeah. and you, you just have to learn to say no. Um, yeah and become a bit pragmatic. You can't go to everything, you can't be at everything. Um, I, I try and, I have sort of two loose boundaries that, that I try and run with. Uh, I try and keep every Tuesday night free for my family. Okay, yeah. So I'm either out with my boys or with my sister or, you know, for dinner or they come around my place. So it's sort of a family night of sorts. And then the second thing I do is I always try and keep my Sundays as free as possible, so um, I don't always achieve that. Uh, and sometimes, you know, there'll be something I've got to duck out to for two hours on a Sunday morning, or there might be something late Sunday afternoon I've got to go to. But generally, I just try and keep one day a week where it's it's a chance for me to go for a surf with the boys, or yeah, switch off, or go and have brekkie with, with some mates, or you know, just have yeah. a quiet day and sleep and. Uh, go for a walk and then have friends around for dinner or something. And yeah. So you, you do have to just put some spots into your life to protect yourself. Yeah. And then the other thing I think uh, that I've always tried to do is remember that life's a journey and that you've got to enjoy the journey as you go. So, um, you know, recently I had to travel out west for a few days visiting health services and mental health services. Um, and I just made sure that I kept reminding myself that I'll probably never get to go to Bullia again. Yeah. I'll never get to fly over the Channel Country again. Yeah. Um, I may or may not get back to Longreach. So while I'm here, I'm going to squeeze in an hour just to go and have a look at the Qantas Museum. And, yeah. and so, you know, like exhausted when I got home, crazy yeah. couple of days. But, um, you know, as we were flying out to Bullia, 
um, I just made sure that I took a deep breath and went, okay. Appreciate the moment. Yeah, stop, stop thinking about all the work and the meeting that I've got in an hour's time. Yeah. Look out the window and just appreciate what's underneath you because it, it's, it's what an amazing country. Yeah. And so you've got to sort of try and enjoy it what, in, yeah. what, when you're in the midst of it. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to throw a scenario at you. This is coming uh-huh. from someone that doesn't yep. know the system well, right? Yeah. Because I was talking to a guy about this the other day and he, it, it stumped him. And I'm sure there's an answer. If, if, so our, we're a democracy, which is ruled by the people. Yeah. People obviously have a representative that leads on their behalf. So I'll give you a scenario. Because when you see the media and you see people jumping up and down, it could be anything. It could be the people not happy with the tram line going through Burley the hotel down at Kings, the um, hospital at Kingscliff, you get the, the feeling that there's this mass, um, you know, well, we live in Kingscliff and we don't want it, but we're being told we are getting it. Mm. That sort of impression. And, and the, the same with the light rail going through yeah. Burley. So I came up with this thing to ask you because I'm, I'm hoping that you'd be able to break it down. If you've got an area, there's 35,000 people like yours, mm-hmm. and you you or your government, the government, let's just say the government says, we're going to put the tram line right through this area. All of a sudden you have, let's use rough figures, let's say 20,000 20, people, say roughly, come through and they say, they write a letter to you. We don't want it. Mm-hmm. That's 60% have said they don't want it, roughly. Does that 60% have the power? Does that then automatically, is the thing of, you know, do you go back and say, look, I've got 60%, an overwhelming majority mm. of the people that this is about to go through that say, we don't want it. Mm. And, I th- and I'm sure there's a simple answer to a complicated problem, but um, it seems like when you hear like James Street, they're talking about raising the height limit, which, mm. and everyone's like, no, we shouldn't do it. And I, I agree, I think James Street looks nice. It's nice not having high rises yeah. everywhere. But I don't live there, so it's not for me to make that judgment or to ha- throw yeah. an opinion you know, that has weight on it. So. I'm curious as to, is it a numbers game or is it only a numbers game if there's still mm. wriggle room? Does it come down to the thing where you can go back to someone and say, look, 60% of the people in Burley don't want that tram line. Mm. We have to bypass well, Burley. Well, um, one, a, a very wise friend of mine said to me years ago, he said, politicians have their eyes on the next election. Yep. Statesmen have their eyes on the next generation. And um, essentially what he was saying is that um, if, if you really want your life and your contribution to count, be a statesman. Yeah. And... Um, you don't hear that term much. No. Anymore. Yeah. So there, there, are, there are undoubtedly many occasions when public opinion will sway a decision of government or delay. Um, I can remember people protesting about uh, three and four storey buildings at Hope Island and that it should all be kept two storey oh, residential oh, wow. domain. Okay. Uh, and now no one complains about that anymore. Yeah. In fact, that's the norm. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so it's, it's, it's challenging because you've, you've got to keep looking forward. And occasionally I've had people in my office when I was a councillor and then um, subsequently uh, as a member of parliament and uh, you know, I moved into here, and I don't. I want the, the the amenity of the suburb maintained, 
And, uh, you know, it's just outrageous. I don't want all these people moving here and I don't want high rise and I don't want this and I don't want that and I don't want light rail. And I often look at them and go, well, you know what? I was born here in 1959 and I'd really like it to be the sunny seaside resort that it was back there without yeah. traffic congestion. So can everyone that's moved here since 1966 yeah. nick off and go back to Victoria and let me have my... Your town back. My town back. Yeah. Because that's what I want. Yeah. And then I'll turn it around and say, but look, I'm a realist. And so the problem, the problem councils had and the problem government has is if you don't plan for growth, then you end up with a crisis. And the crisis is what we had experienced when I was in council back in um, around 2004. All of our sewerage treatment plants were at capacity Oh, and we were having to truck effluent out of new housing estates because we didn't have the connection and the capacity in treatment plants. And so it was costing people and developers tens of thousands of dollars oh, wow. in transport costs. Uh, we nearly ran out of water because we hadn't raised the Hins Dam because yep. people didn't want the Hins Dam raised. Well, they didn't and want it in the first place either. No. So <laughs> and, and people didn't want the desalination plant. Yep. Um, and so I came in at a time, we were having to make decisions. Um, in fact, we spent over a billion dollars just upgrading sewage treatment plants in four Jeez. years. Now, no one comes to you as a councillor and says, thank you so much for increasing yeah. the capacity of the, the sewage treatment yeah. plant. Yeah. It um, happens, it so they're the yeah. things that people don't see. Um, so the Gold Coast and South East Queensland quintessential problem has been that every projection that previous governments have made around growth have been exceeded every decade for the last five decades. Wow. So, so it, you know, and the, the Southern Gold Coast, look, yeah, we could listen to the, the people who uh, have moved there recently and say, well, I, ne I don't want this light rail uh, because it's going to impact on me and the road space and all those things. But... But to ignore the future demands and realities of that area would be a greater travesty. Mm. And by the way, Gary Bailden in 1996, his council of the day commissioned a transport study and the light rail route, as you see it today, was actually, actually envisaged and documented uh, as far back as 1999 wow. when the first transport study came out for the city. So one of the problems you have is um, real estate agents and conveyancing lawyers aren't particularly forthcoming with tr truth. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, normally when you buy a property, uh, you do searches, yeah. uh, you, you, you know, you look at maps, you do your research around an area um, it's a bit tough when you go, okay, well, I've bought this apartment here, so now I don't want that plan from 30 years ago to, to be happen. implemented. Yeah. Um, even though the council's already said, well, that's our plan and that's where we're going strategically. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's like the second uh, highway to Brisbane. Yeah. Um, sadly, there's all these families that have bought beautiful homes on large blocks of land backing onto this natural bush environment about to become a highway and they've all been told that you know oh look they're never going to build that you're going to have these rural this this magnificent free rural bushland setting forever and of course now the government's got to go back through and 
through transport department and consult with all these people and say, we've got, got some bad news for you, but uh, there's a sound barrier going to go up along the back of these fences here. And, yeah. and, but that's been on the maps for 30 years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, they, they would have had to have been buying on the hope and not on the no because, yep. you know, if they were hoping it's not coming. Yeah. But, yeah, that's, it is an interesting because I agree, you, 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 there is challenges. And, and the other thing that, that, um, that people lose sight of, the city's getting more congested. Yeah. Public transport over time will become more utilised yep. because it will be quicker. Yeah. You know, the, the, like even... Even in my sort of, what, 25 years back here, um, I used to sort of go, I can get anywhere from meeting in 15 minutes. Yeah. Uh, now it's 40 minutes. Yeah. I always allow 40 minutes if I've got to be somewhere from meeting yeah. uh, anywhere else on the coast as a minimum. It just takes longer to get around. There are more traffic lights, more people, mm. more congestion. And you can keep building roads, but um, where are we going to yeah. put them? One question I'm sure you get asked, and I don't know if it's... Uh, sorry, by the way... And I'm sending, the other thing I would ask is show me the, the figures because I don't think I've ever seen a, uh, an entire community where 60% have oh, said Oh, really? No. That, that wouldn't be a normal thing? I'd be a bit cynical. Really? Okay. I think yep. 60% of the people that have, you know, fired up and got something to say. Yep. Um, but, but it would be interesting if you go and knock on every single door yeah, and yeah. get everyone's response, you'd probably find those figures would be very different because there's yeah. a... There's probably 30% out there that don't care, don't know. Yep. There's probably 30% that just go, that's progress, I accept that. Yeah. And then there's... There's that loud. Then there's that. Yeah. Then, then there's another 30% that will yep. get fired up and then there's a, another group yeah, yeah. within that, that that tend to be very um, mm, okay, yeah, vocal. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting because obviously uh, never experiencing that, you would be unaware of the ratios that come in for complaints yeah. from that level. Um, when you go into your role, is it a thing of that the the end point is to become the premier? Like, is that something that you would be like, well, yeah, I, I would. No. no, so that's not, you know, oh. a normal. Look, uh, I think any role you take on in life, um, you you go in there hoping for the best in terms of career advancement, reward, remuneration. That's I think that's yeah. the human spirit. Um, I certainly never went into politics, um, uh, sorry, I never went into state politics wanting to be the Premier. Right, okay. Um, I did run for council uh, with the hope that maybe one day I would be Mayor and, uh, and I ran for Mayor and lost. Oh, really? Uh, in 2008. Um, but I have to say being Mayor of the Gold Coast is a very different um, role yeah. to aspiring to being Premier. Um, and it's not something that I've ever aspired to, um, but but I but I do this job out of a sense of service. Yeah. Um, you know, service to my community, um, personal fulfilment. You know, I love helping people and making a difference. Um, and at another level, in a sense, uh, out of a sense of call or purpose before God. Um, so. You know, if the next election, David Crisofulli taps me on the shoulder and says, look, I'd really like you to take on a significant portfolio within the government, there's a part of me that would go, oh, I don't really want that much grief in my life. Yeah. Um, but another part of me that would simply say, well, I came here to serve. And you can do I'll more, do my right? best. Yeah. Um, if, if 
further leadership opportunities presented themselves, I guess I'd have to weigh that up at the time and go, yeah. well, what's my health like? Can I do the job? Yeah. You know, what's the political landscape? You know, what are the obstacles? What are the, you know, do yeah. I have the skills to do that? Um, Something that I, I believe is important to you, um, because I've always taken an interest in it too, <clears throat> Southport. I remember back in the, in the 90s and the late 90s, you know, when I was 18, 19, in the early 2000s, they got Southport in 10 years, this is going to be a little CBD, this is going to be great, this is going to mm. be this. And it seemed like a switch flipped and it just stopped, it fell. Mm. And it's, it is the only bit of somewhat CBD-ish culture we have mm. on the Gold Coast. There's so much potential. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's just such a shame to see this. Well... Um, you have to remember that, that cities evolve and while we've, we've put the framework in place for Southport to become the CBD, yep. you know, with development controls, um, you know, uh, bonuses in terms of height and density, um, you know, uh, certain planning codes around uh, the sorts of businesses that we want to attract, They're all, all those building blocks are in place. Um, but we, we, we're in a supply and demand economy yeah. and um, growth and development are, are all about supply and demand. It's basic economics. We're seeing an increase in demand, uh, one of, and, but we've had a couple of setbacks. Um, to some extent, the Commonwealth Games, when you go and build enough, enough accommodation for 10,000 people just on the outskirts of Southport, yeah. Uh, that's going to soak up a bit of uh, demand for three or four or five years. Yeah. Uh, I intriguingly, though, um, the the occupancy rates of apartments and and units within Southport have been, you know, very high. Oh, okay. And it actually took a lot longer for the Games Village to fill. Oh, right. And it's really only the pandemic and the demand for people to want to live back in Queensland that's seen that accelerate. So we're kind of at the cusp again of the next wave of um, infill development. Look, when you drive down um, Scarborough Street, then the, where Suncorp and ANZ and all those banks used to be, mm. 8.30 in the morning, there's no one. Where years mm. ago, that was the shop fronts, you know, mm. and, it, and it had... Yeah, but that's, but, but that's a global trend. Um, strip malls, as you call them, or, or, you know, main streets, all over the world, uh, are suffering because we're building this this trend towards big block mm. shopping centres, yeah. um, and and the simple truth is that pretty much anywhere you go in the world, uh, there's an oversupply of um, uh, uh, retail space and office space, and then that's been exacerbated by the pandemic because now a lot of businesses are downsizing their offices and are going, gee, we can all work from home with Zoom and yeah. Microsoft Teams and. You know, it's yeah. it, that that there's a whole new paradigm ahead. Uh, I've actually been saying for ten years, council should have had a moratorium on retail development, yeah. and literally just put a freeze on it and said, "You want to build a high-rise town? No problem, but you're not putting another thirteen shops or thirty shops at street level. We've got enough retail space at grade. Yeah. Find something else to do with the space." Yeah. Um, and, and I think we're starting to have those conversations now. Okay. Yeah. Um, but in defence of Southport, uh, 
19% of all jobs on the Gold Coast, all full-time equivalent jobs, are in my electorate. Wow, okay. So one in five jobs, so there's 11 electorates, but one in five jobs is in my electorate. So we have the health precinct, the university, we have the courts, we have all professional services. Yep. Um, and yes, there's a bit of an expansion than just the CBD, because I've got Bundle and I've got the industrial estate at the back yep. of Southport, so you've got a lot of industry as well. Um, uh, the other thing with CBDs is that uh, they're active Monday to Friday and they're dead yeah, on weekends. Weekend. Yep. And so I spend a bit of time in Brisbane on weekends. Um, and my observation of the Brisbane CBD is unless there's a doubleheader football game on a Saturday night yeah. uh, at Suncorp, uh, Brisbane cities, it's a ghost town on the weekends. Yeah. Um, and, and Southport can be a bit like that. Um, the interesting thing about Chinatown, which has got so much further to go, but it's there and it's mm, a start. Yeah, and definitely. It was basically about putting a welcome mat out to people of Asian culture and, yeah. and allowing international students to sort of feel a little bit at home. Yeah. Um, you walk down there any night of the week after about 7 o'clock. Yeah. Uh, the car parks are all full. Yeah, that little section The restaurants is, are all full. does really well. Uh, yeah. And there's a real buzz there till yeah. about midnight. Yeah, no, which I agree. is amazing. And look, statistically, you look at the homeless issue. Um, statistic, like there are occasions it's looked bad, and we've done a lot of work to manage people off the street. Okay. Um, and uh, we've put a lot of support services, but not just into there, into Surface, Broad Beach, Coolangatta, Palm Beach, Chugan, um, Labrador. Um, but but fact of life is you're always going to have that cohort of people who have got significant mental health issues or addictions yeah. that are very challenging to manage. Um, what we're finding now is that if you're genuinely homeless and you want to be off the street, um, there's a government department or a service that'll get, that, that'll get you off oh. the street and somewhere within you know, a week or two. Oh, okay. Um, but the, the hard life club that you see hanging around, yep. for want of a description, uh, the, most of them are chronically homeless, and I'm actually, I've actually got a board meeting this evening with a group of people where we're seeking to establish uh, common ground on the Gold Coast, which is uh, a program that accommodates uh, long-term um, people with significant disability and mental health challenges. Oh, okay. So it's a it's a concierge supporting supported living model. Yeah. Um, uh, that was first started in New York by a lady called Roseanne Hegarty. I've had the privilege of meeting in a oh. previous business life. And so we, uh, we, we built the first common ground in Queensland under Campbell Newman's government. Oh, okay. uh, we also built the first youth foyer in Queensland, which is a UK concept, which is about supported living for um, young people who can't live with their families but still need to study or finish high school. And so we've got the second youth foyer in Queensland opening in Southport in just a matter of weeks with 50 apartments. And my hope is that within three or four years we'll have 100, 150, maybe 200 um, supported living apartments for, for that hard life club that, yeah. that need that extra level of support and care. Jeez, yeah, well, that sounds promising, all those, you know, those measures well, you've Well, you just got to keep hoping and dreaming and... Yeah, keep pushing. And, and as a friend of mine uh, once said, um, when I asked her how she copes, because um, Karen Walsh runs um, 
an organisation in Brisbane that provide a lot of these services. And I remember saying to her about eight, seven or eight years ago, how do you how do you cope with the tsunami of need? Yeah, yeah. And she just said, I cling to this one um, quote or one expression that someone shared with me, and, 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 and I'll share it now. It's better to do something for someone than try and do everything for everyone, lest you end up doing nothing for no one. And so my Very view true. is that every person we help, it's worth helping, yeah. uh, but on the understanding that we're not going to be able to help everyone. Yeah, yeah. You've answered everything. <laughs> no, that's great. Thank you very much. That's all. That's perfect conversation. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So I appreciate your time. I, I mean, imagine you don't have much to give, so I appreciate that it's, you know, you've you put a bit aside for, for nobody oh, for yourself. I feel very so. honoured. feel very honoured that you want to, that someone even cares about my opinion these days. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for sticking through to the end of... Uh, that episode there. Look, I hope you enjoyed it or got something out of it or, or took something away from it. Um, look, you know, politics is always a, an interesting uh, topic and it, it can uh, certainly uh, divide people and all the rest of it. But, um, I, you know, I hope that um, it shone some light on, I guess, uh, anyone that's interested in joining or wonders what their local member does all day, or even wonders what power they, as a, an individual or a collective, have you know, in their society, um, you know, how much they can, I suppose, sway the direction of government for their area. Because it, it is an interesting topic, and it's something that I've always wondered and worried about. Um, we are losing a, a lot of individuality in this world. We are homogenising states um, and and suburbs uh, there is a push to make everything all inclusive and all things to all people um, and not that my opinion matters but you know I, I think we should go the other way I think it's more about being able to drive to a certain location and enjoy what that suburb or district has to offer and hop in the car and go somewhere else that's completely different and you can choose where it is you want to live um, so you know, it, it's uh, it's worrying when I suppose if a government has an agenda or a council has an agenda to to do something, and the people that live there and have moved there and are that area are powerless to steer its direction, um, possibly an independent uh, you know voter uh, representative. Um, may change things i don't know uh, by all means welcome the conversation with an independent um, member of any parliament um but you know not having a dig uh, at all at, at rob or the liberals or, or anything but it would be an interesting uh, i suppose to flip it on its side and say well if we had an overwhelming majority of independent members does that then create the opportunity for each area to be more uh singular and, and individual and reflective of those people that live there. So, look, that's something, you know, that I'm happy to try and chase up and ask someone about, uh, should the opportunity arise. A lot of this is just stuff that, random stuff that interests me uh, and people I come across, um, you know, asking questions that you, you probably or hopefully or may not find anywhere else, um, you know, especially when the majority of platforms are all about either advertising or um, clicks and, and pushing through content super fast. So um, hopefully you appreciate that this is a little bit off that track. 
the next one I've got coming up for you in the next couple of weeks, hopefully, um, is different all again too. So we're going into, um, I suppose, the history of the old Dunlop Volley shoe and and its new uh, path. It's It's been rebranded and uh, taken on a new lease of life. Um, so a bit of history and a bit of business uh, all wrapped into one. And I'm going to get that out to you as soon as I can. Thank you very much uh, for sticking with the podcast and I will catch up with you in the next couple of weeks.